Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher, Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner. In this conversation, we're going to be talking about the first book of Samuel. That implies there's at least another one, Mike. Um, what's this, this first book about? What does it cover? Yeah, you're right. There is more than one. There's one Samuel and two Samuel. And believe it or not, they both were originally part of the same book. And it was only later that they were actually divided into two when the Hebrew text was translated into to Greek. What's it about? It's about a time of transition. It takes us from the period that we've seen in a previous episode, that end of the period of the judges, through to Israel's first kings. So it focuses around essentially some key characters. Samuel, who was the last of the sort of judges, but also a prophet figure who prepared the way for Saul, Israel's first king, and the disobedience of Saul that led to him being replaced by a name that many of us will know, King David, one of Israel's greatest king. So it's a storyline that that hangs around these three great names, Samuel, Saul, and David. So it's named after Samuel, and Samuel is therefore featured, as you say. Who was he? Where did he come from? Samuel was a prophet. Uh, It's named after him, as you say. Uh, It may be that some of it was written by him, some of those earlier chapters, but, you know, he's going to die off fairly soon in the story. So clearly it's named in honour of him. And uh, we're told at the beginning of the book that there was a man named Elkanah who lived in Ramah in the region of Zoph in the hill country of Ephraim. So from the north of Israel And it's his son, uh, Samuel, that will carry the story forward. Uh, A son, by the way, born to barren parents. So often we find this theme recurring in these early chapters of the Old Testament where the husband and wife are often unable to have children. And it's the incredible, miraculous intervention of God that enables the child to be born and then so often that child turns out to be very significant in God's plan. So having waited for a child or hoped for a child and now the child comes, um, it's a special child, obviously. What what is the response of the parents? Oh, well, the, the parents are absolutely thrilled, of course, and there's some lovely bits in the first couple of chapters of 1 Samuel where they are so thrilled that they dedicate their child to God a real dedication to God, a saying to God, because you gave us this child and we could expect to have none, we are going to give him back to your service because I prayed for this child and you gave me what I asked for. And and chapter two had this beautiful prayer uh, from Hannah and when the child is weaned, they actually do hand him over to uh, to another key player in the story, this priest called Eli, for him to grow up and to serve the priest Eli. It comes out not of a sense of uncaring. I mean, think again. We've spoken often about put yourself in the story. How must you have felt as Hannah 
to have waited months after months after months for this child, eventually for God to hear your prayer and then for you to be so grateful to God to say, I give him back to you. He's going to be given to you. And it looks like once a year she took him up a little coat, the next size up, as it were, as he was growing up. So she didn't even see him all that often. But it must have been an incredible sacrifice. But her sacrifice as a mum gives us a key player in the Old Testament story, this young boy, Samuel, who originally is there as really an assistant to the priest Eli, whose sons we discover are pretty wicked. I mean, they're wheeler dealers. They're they're making a living out this priesthood thing. Very ungodly guys. So Samuel is quite a contrast. He's a godly boy. And in chapter three, we find that while he is still young, at a time when the Bible tells us here, in the days when the word of the Lord was rare, he rare. He wasn't speaking to Israel. Why was he not speaking? God wasn't speaking. Because they weren't listening. You know, in a sense, there's there's a bit of a challenge to us. God is gracious. God speaks again and again and again. But if we eventually, if we keep putting our hands over our ears and refusing to listen, the point comes when, you know, if we stop listening, God stops speaking. And he stopped speaking to his people. Why? Well, we're at the end of that period of the judges. That downward spiral we've spoken about when Israel didn't care about God, when they were following other gods, the Baals, that highly sexualized religion. And so God's just stopped speaking. It's like, well, if you aren't going to listen, there's no point in my speaking. So that's the background. But against a background when God isn't speaking because people aren't listening, in chapter three, there is this great story of how God calls out to the young boy Samuel during the night. And it's that rare that Samuel thinks Eli's called him. So he goes and nudges him and says, yeah, you called me. And Eli says, stupid boy, I didn't call you at all. Go back to sleep. And the same thing happens again. He hears a voice, Samuel, Samuel. And he goes and wakes Eli and says, you called me, master. No, I didn't call you. And eventually... Eli realizes what's happening, that God is speaking and says to him, look, next time you hear that voice, just say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And Samuel gets his first word from the Lord. Suddenly he is starting to hear from God. And actually the very first word that he hears is that he is about to bring judgment on Eli and his sons because of the godless way of life that they have fallen into. Now, imagine having to share that as your first prophetic word because the next morning Eli says, so what did God say? And he he sort of ums and ahs a bit and he says, come on, don't hide it from me. And he has to share it with him. Wow, that, that must have been a difficult first prophetic word to share. But from that moment on, Samuel is now set apart as a prophet of the Lord. And chapter three ends with it saying that as he grew up, he was increasingly recognized as a prophet throughout the nation. So the scene is set after a time when God hasn't been speaking because people haven't been listening. God has now called a prophet through whom he can speak to the nation and lead them at this crucial time. It sounds as if Samuel heard an audible voice. And the question I've got to ask is, how do we hear the voice of God today? 
Yes, I think it, it must have been an audible voice because he clearly thought it was Eli calling for him. Now, what I'm encouraged by is that is not always the way that God speaks, even in the Bible. God speaks prophetically through a number of things. So as we get to some of the prophets later in our series, we'll find that some of them, oh, like Amos, for example, God speaks to him through what he sees. He will look and see something either literally physically around him or maybe a picture, as we might put it in our mind. And God suddenly speaks within. There's that sense that God is speaking within. The New Testament does tell us that, you know, if we have the spirit of Jesus, then we can expect to hear Jesus speaking to us. But it could be in a whole variety of ways. It might be as we read God's word. It might be through getting a picture or an impression or a phrase that comes to our mind that simply will not go away. We don't know where it came from. We have to step out and graciously share it and we'll find that God has been speaking. So young Samuel grows up continuing to listen for the voice of God and speaking for God. And how then does God use him in that way? Well, he becomes, I suppose, what we call one of the last of the judges. He becomes one of these spirit anointed leaders because he will actually lead Israel uh, even into battle in the coming chapters In the chapters that follow, in chapters 4 and 5, we find that the Philistines, the traditional enemies of Israel from the coast, are in battle against Israel. What we know historically at this time is that as they were growing in numbers, they were needing to push inland and find more territory. And inland, of course, was Israel. And in one of those battles, the the Ark of the Covenant, that special artifact, that gold-covered box that contained the Ten Commandments, is actually captured by the Philistines, taken as a trophy, put on display in their temples, but it doesn't go well for them. And uh, disaster after disaster keeps falling upon them until eventually they return the Ark of the Covenant on a new cart to Israel. They're really sorry that they ever took it. But by chapter 7, we find Samuel actually leading Israel into battle and winning in a battle against the Philistines at Mizpah. So he is a spiritual man. He's a man who can hear the voice of God, who acts as a judge in settling issues for people, but who's also something of a a military leader as well, who can lead Israel into battle. And you would have thought, well, what more could Israel need? I was going to say, you've got these military victories going on and uh, Samuel is leading the nation in this way. But the nations around, I guess, have their own way of doing things. Yes, and it was very different. And it was those different ways that would lead Israel to make a request that really, really angers Samuel. As we come to chapter 8, chapter 8 begins with the words that when Samuel grew old. So he's now an older man. Quite a lot of time has passed over those first seven chapters. And he appoints his own sons to be judges after him, but they aren't very good. Actually, they're corrupt. It tells us that his sons didn't walk in his ways and they accepted bribes. So clearly the leadership is not going to pass to his sons, the author is saying to us. And then all the elders, all the leaders of the the tribes come to Samuel at Ramah, which was the place that he'd made his base. 
Uh, and they come to him one day and, and we read in chapter eight that he says, you are old and your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us like all the other nations have. Again, put yourself into Samuel's position here. One, the young people come to you and say, you're getting old. I'm an older guy, you know, and that could hurt. You're getting old. You're not going to be around forever. Your sons are rubbish. We can't trust them. And anyway, look at all the nations around us. It's clear as we look at the nations around us, the reason they are doing so well, the reason the Philistines and the Ammonites and all the otherites are doing so well, we've worked out, is they have a king. They have a key figure who can unite the nation around themselves. So please appoint a king for us. That's what we are missing. If only we had a king, we would be in a better position. And Samuel is mortified by this. I think he's mortified. There's a bit of, you know, self-pity going on there as well. But as he goes to God about this, when we feel like that's always good to take it to God, and that's what he does. And God says to him, listen, it's not you they've rejected. They've rejected me as their king. Little interesting insight there when God says it's not you they've rejected. He could see and feel what Samuel was feeling. You've not done a very good job. You've certainly not done what we've talked about previously, trained your sons well to pass on the leadership to them. Interesting, Eli, under whose ministry he had been trained himself, hadn't trained his sons well either. This is history repeating itself. So God says, look, they've not rejected you. It's me that they're rejecting. So what I want you to do is to go back to them and say, okay, I'll give you a king, but I want to warn you what a king will do. And so he goes back to the people, says, okay, we'll give you a king, but I want to tell you this is what a king will do. And he starts to list many of the things that the king would do, like taking your sons and daughters and making them serve him and run with his chariots and making them military leaders and so on and taking your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and taking the best of your fields and your harvest. By the way, all of these are things that King Solomon would one day do in fulfillment of that prophecy. So he's basically saying, well, I'll give you a king, but you do realize all the downsides to a king, don't you? And they just turn around and say, no, we want a king. We want a king. A king is the answer to our need. Of course it wasn't. What their need was, they needed to get back to God and putting their trust in him. Funny how we can always blame everything else or find an answer in everything else other than facing up to the real issue, isn't it? So they say, no, we want a king. And there's a difference between wanting and needing. Absolutely. They didn't need a king. They had a king. But of course, they weren't living in ways that saw the blessing of that king released among them. What Moses had said way back in Deuteronomy that obedience will lead to blessing. Disobedience will lead to curse, to the lack of blessing. And so the people are feeling, if only we could get a king, life would be great. It's a bit like us today. If only I could get a better job. If only I could get a pay increase, family life would be better. If only I could find a partner to marry. If only... And yet very often that, if only, is not the heart of the issue. The heart of the issue is something really quite different. 
And once we've got the if only, really life hasn't changed. And it wouldn't really for Israel either. And I guess God is always right. So what kind of king did they get? Oh, God gave them the best that he could find according to what they were looking for. Because what they were looking for was a king who'd be strong and powerful and who would lead them into battle and conquer the Philistines. Now, I have to be honest with you. If I were God at this point, I would have probably said, all right, you miserable lot. You want a king? I'll show you a king. Here's a king. And I would have probably given them the worst that I could have found to prove to them it wouldn't work. God's not like that. In chapter 9 of 1 Samuel, God finds them the very, very best that he can according to their values. He, he finds a man called Saul. And we read these words, a man named Saul, an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than any of the others. So both physically and in terms of his character, he would be ideal. So God says, that's who I will choose. And in the chapters that follow in chapter nine, he anoints him privately to be the king. In, in chapter 10, it happens among his family. So his family knows some great stories there. And in chapter 10, he's then publicly acknowledged as the king. Actually, when the public acknowledgement comes, he has to be dragged because he's hiding in the baggage. That's how much he doesn't want to do this. So it's interesting, isn't it? He starts out strong, gracious, of good character, humble. He doesn't want the kingship. He's hiding in the baggage, running away from it. But a change will happen in this guy's heart as, frankly, power goes to his head. So by 11, we see him doing everything that Israel wanted to do. He's leading Israel into battle. He's being that great sort of king that he wants to be. In chapter 12, Samuel does his sort of farewell speech because he thinks his work is over now. But in chapter 13, it will all go wrong. Because you see, although God gave Israel a king, he wanted a king who would understand that he himself had a king over him that the king acknowledged there was a living God in Israel and on the earth who was his king and that the human king had to be ready to submit himself to that king, to obey him, his word as it was given in scripture, but also his word as it was given through the prophets. And so in chapter 13, we, we find an act of disobedience. Samuel has told him to gather at a certain place, a place called Gilgal, where he would come to offer sacrifice before they went into battle. But Samuel's a bit late in coming and the Philistine army is gathering more and more and Saul's own men are getting more and more frightened and they're starting to scatter and they're starting to flee. And, and so Saul, as king, thinks, well, I've got no alternative. I will have to offer the sacrifice. And just at that moment that he does, Samuel turns up and says, what have you done? And he says, oh, well, <laughs> you know, when I saw that you'd not arrived yet and saw that the men were scattering and the Philistines were gathering, I thought I, thought I would have to offer the sacrifice. And Samuel replies, you've acted foolishly. You've not 
kept the command that God gave you. You wanted to be king over God the king. And so now your kingdom will not endure. He's going to take it away from you and give it to what the Bible calls a man after God's own heart. A man who'd want to pursue God first and foremost. And Samuel then leaves Saul to himself. Now he's given a second chance. In chapter 15, although he's been told he won't continue as king, it's like God in his graciousness gives him a second chance, tells him to go and attack Amalek, the king of the, uh, Agag, sorry, the, the king of the Amalekites, to destroy everything, to spare nothing. But they spare some of the best stuff. So when Samuel turns up and Saul says to him, ah, I've, I've carried out what the Lord said. In the background. And Samuel says, sorry, uh, what, what's that I hear in the background then? All these cattle and sheep. Oh, yeah, well, you know, we totally destroyed a lot, but we kept the best to offer to the Lord. Suddenly it becomes very spiritual. And Samuel says, that's not what God told you to do. What God desires more than anything else is obedience. To obey is better than sacrifice. And so because he has now failed to obey God for the second time, Samuel says, the kingdom is taken from your hand. In God's eyes, you are now no longer king. He thought he was top of the tree. And he'd forgotten that the top of the tree there's only room for one person, and that's God. So who was this man after God's heart? Well, as we get to chapter 16, we find that. Now, Saul has been told that he's no longer going to be king. But kings and anyone in power don't give power up easily, do they? No. So he clings on. But what we'll see in the second half of the book of Samuel is decline, even his mental decline as well as this decline in power. But at the same time, we see an up-and-coming young man who's going to take his place. We're introduced to him in chapter 16. It's this young man, David, who is such an unlikely candidate for kingship. He's just a young boy. He's probably a young, lanky teenager at this point, at that point where boys are sort of transitioning between boys to men and they can often be lanky and, you know, has their voice broken or not yet? We're not quite sure. And he's so out of the running that his father doesn't even bring him onto the scene when Samuel says, gather all your sons, and he brings them all except David. Where's David? David's looking after the sheep. That was the job of the young shepherd boys in those days. They just sat out on the hills, and then if they saw animals or robbers coming, they'd run and get the real men. So... He's the youngest. Uh, he doesn't even think, his dad doesn't even think it's worth bringing him. But Samuel says, no, we're not going to start the feast till he comes. So long story short, they send for him, he comes. And the minute he turns up, the minute Samuel sees him, God speaks to him and says, rise and anoint him. He is the one. Now, isn't it interesting? There's nothing to look at in this boy. We're told that he's a fine looking young boy. He's got good features, but He's young, he's the youngest, he's got nothing going for him. What a contrast to Saul, who seemed to have everything going for him, and yet who wouldn't do it God's way. Here now is a young man who 
humanly speaking, doesn't have a lot going for him. But what he has going for this is he's the man after God's heart. Because he's a shepherd boy. He hadn't gone to his careers teacher and said, I want to become king one day. Absolutely not. And remember, kingship is new in Israel. It's the first time we've got it. He grew up thinking he'd be a shepherd, like his brothers, like his dad. But something had been developing this boy's heart as he had grown. So that even at this point, he's become a man after God's heart. He's a man who wants what God wants always. And that's what God tells Samuel. And that's what God picks out. And so the second half of the book of Samuel are stories about the rise of King David. So he is anointed here as Israel's future king. Anointed, but not presumably enthroned. Absolutely not. And it will, in fact, be 10 years before he's enthroned. Why? Well, we've said Israel already has its king, Saul. He doesn't want to let go. And so in these chapters that follow, we see it's, it's like God's training of David in, in a whole number of ways. Actually, he's taken into Saul's service at the end of chapter 16 as a musician. He got a great talent at playing harp and making songs up. Some of the Psalms that we will sing, uh, see later. And when he used to sing, when Saul was going into some of his manic episodes, his spiritual songs had a way of soothing his spirit. In chapter 17, we see his courage, that famous story of David and Goliath. As this young shepherd boy overcomes the Philistine champion just with his slingshot that he'd become so skillful. Now, out of this, as David is growing up, Saul becomes increasingly jealous. So in chapter 18, we find jealousy arising in Saul, particularly as when David returns one day. By the way, he's become really good close friends with Saul's son, Jonathan, by now as well, which worried Saul. But he's coming back one day from some military campaign and he hears all the ladies singing outside, welcoming the soldiers as they come back. Saul has slain his thousands. Ah, yes, he basks in the praise. And David has slain his tens of thousands and Saul's face oh. sinks. Mm. And he sees that people are starting to see more in David than him. Because Saul doesn't know that David's been anointed to become his successor. And yet David does know, but obviously doesn't let on. Yes, though it becomes increasingly clear that the penny starts to drop. Saul starts to see what is happening. He sees people gathering to him. And so he actually, in chapter 19, will make an attempt on David's life, attempt to kill him. And David has to flee. And he will now spend the next 10 years on the run. 10 years? 10 years hiding in forests, in caves. Saul will be chasing him, trying to get him, trying to kill him. Twice we will see David spare Saul's life when he could have killed him but didn't. Why? Because he said, I refuse to lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. And this is a king in waiting. It's a king in waiting, yes. And a king in waiting in the strangest of places, forests, caves, hills, even towards the end of this book, having to go over to Philistine territory and to pretend to be a Philistine mercenary. That's how desperate David is, how far he has to run to get away 
from this increasingly mad King Saul who is determined to kill him. And and so David pretends to be a mercenary for the Philistines, saying that he's going out to battle against Israel, but instead goes battling against mutual enemies and comes back with their loot and saying, oh, I got this from Israel. But it nearly backfires on him when he has to go into battle against Saul in one last great battle at the end of the book. And it's only because some of the Philistines come to the kings and say, here, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. This guy used to work for Saul. Supposing he turns round in battle and turns against us and the king has to come to David and say, I'm really sorry. I know how much you were wanting to go into this battle, David, but they just won't let you take me. David says, oh no, I so wanted to go into battle against Saul. Secretly, he's breathing a sigh of relief. So David's playing a bit of a dangerous double game here, but I think it reflects the the hardship of these 10 years that he was in. You know, I've often thought, how long did it take the prophet Samuel to anoint David? A few seconds? I don't know, five seconds, 10 seconds? A horn of oil poured over his head and to say the Lord anoints you king seconds, maybe 10 seconds. But it would take 10 years for David to actually come to that place where once Saul dies as a result of the battle, he actually ends up taking his own life because he has been mortally wounded by chapter 31. 10 years before David has come to the place where the throne is vacant. And as we'll go on to see in 2 Samuel, that people will come to him and invite him to be king. 10 seconds to get God's calling, 10 years to come into God's calling. And I'm often challenged by that personally today that, you know, God can speak to us and put something in our hearts. I want you to become a preacher. I want you to become a great teacher in schools. I want you to become a nurse. I want you to become a pastor, whatever it might be. And yet just because God has spoken to us, it doesn't drop out of heaven. We then have to give ourselves to the process And the difference between David and Saul, it stands out in this book, is that Saul never wanted to give himself to the process. He just wanted to step straight into the authority. He was always right. He could make the decisions. He could override the prophet or the word of God. David, a tender man who always wanted to obey God and his word and who went through the process that God took him on, to get to the place that God wanted him to be in. Mike Beaumont has been talking to David Taverner. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation. This is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, check out the website at ucb.co.uk.